listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Good morning, Harvest. We try that one more time. Good morning, Harvest. All right, there we are. It is uh, so great to be here. Let's take our Bibles and open up to Titus chapter 2, the New Testament book of Titus and uh, chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me just say uh, what an absolute delight it is uh, for Stacy and I to be here with you this weekend. Uh, we are so grateful to Pastor Meldon for the invitation uh, to spend this weekend with you. And um, we love your pastor and his family. We love what God is doing in them and through them. We love what God is doing here at Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. Um, I had the privilege of getting to know Meldon uh, at the training center. We were in the same class together um, going back, I guess, about a year and a half ago in Chicago. And uh, it is, uh, it's been a delight to get to know him and see the ways that God is using him. And uh, it's been great for us all the way across the country to be able to hear of the ways that God is moving here in this church and, and the ways that he's answering prayer and changing lives. And uh, we are so grateful for that, so thankful uh, for what God is doing. And uh, we love our fellowship of churches too. And uh, the fact that, that we can travel all the way across the country and be in a church this weekend that we know values the very same things that we do in our church in Brantford, Ontario, that is a massive blessing uh, for us. And so it is great to be here with you this morning. Uh, you know, one of those things that we value so much is proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. And so we're going to get right into God's word this morning. Let's have our Bibles open to Titus chapter 2. And uh, the Apostle Paul is uh, writing this letter uh, to a young pastor named Titus. You guys don't mind if I go a little bit mobile here, do you? I'm going to come out and get a little bit closer to you guys. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to a young pastor named Titus uh, who has been called by God and he has been affirmed by the Apostle Paul uh, to plant and establish these network of churches on this small island called Crete, which is uh, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And... Um, uh, Paul has given uh, Titus the commission to do this. One of the challenges, though, that we see at the beginning of chapter 1 is that uh, Paul says that many people on this island of Crete could not be any farther away from God than what they currently are. In fact, Paul goes to the length of saying that uh, and quoting one of their own philosophers and teachers to say that Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And those are the people that, that Paul is on this island and Titus is on this island to plant a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church who loves Jesus Christ among people like this. And uh, if that is not enough, Paul then says towards the end of chapter 1 that there are false teachers uh, who are ever so subtly seeping their way in to these newly established churches, kind of like water fills a crack in a pavement, and, and they're seeping into this church and Paul says you need to silence them. Don't give these false teachers any room. Don't give them any opportunity to spread their false gospels because their gospel is going to take people farther away from Jesus instead of bringing people closer to Jesus. And so Paul says you need to silence them because they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. That's the context that Paul is writing this letter to Titus. And uh, then in chapter 2, uh, Paul says, Your life, uh, believers in Crete, and by extension to you and I today, he says, your life should be different from that of the false teachers that we were introduced to in chapter 1. And, uh, and he says that uh, there's only one thing that will be able to take your life from being unfit for any good work and cause you to live a life of good works. 
And when you have this one thing, that one thing will change everything. That one thing will make things completely different. That one thing will radically change the way that you live. Um, Take a minute and think about some of the things that we have in our lives that radically change the way that we have lived. And uh, I wrote down a few things. Uh, For example, the invention of the wheel. Okay, the invention of the wheel has radically changed the way that we live, right? Uh, We don't know who created the wheel. We don't know exactly when the wheel was created. But what we do know is that when the wheel was invented, uh, it changed the way that we live. And it made the transportation of goods much faster and more efficient. And uh, not only did it affect transportation, but it's also affected so many different uh, ways that we live today. And, And it's not just transportation. It's things like gears and cogs, cranks and pulleys. Uh, So much of our modern technology is dependent on some variation of the wheel. And uh, I wrote down another example, the invention of the light bulb. And uh, Thomas Edison was created with the, or credited, sorry, with the invention of the light bulb in 1879, and the light bulb has become the catalyst uh, for so much of what we have today. Now, you take a look at that light bulb there up on the screen. I mean, imagine trying to screw that into your ceiling, right? That's not going to end very well for you. And uh, fortunately, the light bulb has uh, developed in many different ways since it was first invented. How about the invention of the telephone? Uh, The telephone was invented by Alexander Graham Bell in 1876, and it opened up so many pathways for communication, and uh, we see so many variations since then of what the phone looks like and how we use it to the point where many of us are maybe at church this morning and we carry our phone in our pocket. And maybe you have your phone in front of you right now and you have your Bible open on it. And uh, these things are, are things that radically change the way that we live. In Titus chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is saying that you have been given the grace of God. And the grace of God is meant to radically impact the way that you live. If you like to write things down, you can jot that down. The grace of God must radically impact every part of my life. And, And it doesn't impact us only spiritually, although of course it does, right? The grace of God also impacts us relationally and mentally, emotionally, physically, financially. The grace of God is meant to impact every single part of our life. Martin Lloyd Jones said it like this It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie on our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort, help, and strengthen us there is the one thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that, loved ones, is why grace must amaze us. Because the grace that saved us at the very beginning is the very same grace that keeps us to the end. So the title of today's message is uh, Amazed by Grace. And so uh, follow along in your Bible, Titus chapter 2, as I begin reading in verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
The grace of God must radically impact every part of my life. So here they are, five things that I need to know about the grace of God. Here's the first. Uh, The grace of God saves me. Okay, the grace of God saves me. Notice again, chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Now, for those of us who have been at church for a little while, uh, this is not exactly new information, right? The grace of God saves me. And, and many of us could stand up here and we could give testimony to the reality that had God's grace not come and found me at a particular time in a particular way at just the right time, then my life would be very different than what it is right now. And had God's grace not come and found you at exactly the right time in exactly the right way, you wouldn't be sitting here in this room right now. You wouldn't be at church right now. I wouldn't be standing up here right now had God's grace not come and found me at exactly the right time. And um, the thing is, when we come to church, we expect to hear a lot about the grace of God. And sometimes when we hear a certain term or a certain phrase uh, repeatedly, it can lose its impact a little bit. And so uh, let's get a definition of grace on the table for us this morning. The grace of God is God's unmerited favor. Okay? It is God's unmerited favor favor. And uh, you've probably heard that definition before. And uh, you know that a word is a big deal when you need to define its definition. And so uh, let's take a minute and let's unpack this, this term unmerited favor. What exactly does that mean? Well, first of all, God's grace is unmerited. That means that we don't deserve it. It means that it doesn't matter how hard we try. It doesn't matter how much we try to contribute to it. It doesn't matter how hard we work. Uh, Nothing changes the reality that we do not deserve the grace of God. And, And the thing is, that flies in the face of so much of our culture, right? It flies in the face of so much of the way that we live our life today. And it starts from the very moment that you're sitting in your high chair with your little tray in front of you and the little Cheerios that mom and dad put on the tray. And they say, eat all your Cheerios and then I'll give you more. And why do you get more Cheerios? You get more because you ate what was on your tray to begin with, right? You earned it. So you get more. You, you receive what you worked so hard to earn. And then you get a little bit older and mom and dad say, clean your room and I'll give you an allowance. Well, why do you get the allowance? You get it because you earned it, right? You receive what you worked so hard to earn. Uh, you get a little bit older and you go to school and, and you do tests and exams and papers and assignments and you receive some academic recognition. And, and why do you get that recognition? Because you earned it and you receive what you worked so hard to earn. You get a bit older, you go to college, university, trade school, and uh, maybe you get some more academic recognition there. Uh, you get on the dean's list, you get scholarships. And why do you get all of that recognition? Because you earned it, and you receive what you work so hard to earn. You get a bit older, you get your first Monday to Friday, nine to five job, and, uh, and you're at the company for a little while, maybe you get a raise. Why do you get the raise? Because you earned it, and you receive what you work so hard to earn. You're at that company for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, and, and you get promotions during that time. Why do you get promotions? Because you earned it, and you receive what you work so hard to earn, and then, and then you retire after that. And, and why do you get to retire? Because you earned it, and you receive what you work so hard to earn. And then after you've been retired for a little while, your children who love you so much decide that they're going to put you in this really nice home uh, with these really nice people who are going to take really nice care of you, and they're going to feed you really nice meals. And, and why do you get to go into this really nice home? Because you earned it right? And you receive what you work so hard to earn. So much of our life is built on the system of merit. 
So much of our life is built on this understanding that we need to work hard for what we get. And so maybe that can help us understand sometimes why we come to church and we think that we need to do something to earn God's favor. And, and maybe we think to ourselves, God, surely you must have seen all of the money that I've dropped in the offering plate over the past year. I mean, that's no small amount, God. Surely there must be something in that for me. And, and God, surely you've seen when I, when I gave that guy a ride, and, and I didn't really want to do that, but I did it anyway, and, and surely there must be something more in this for me, God. And, and surely you've seen the fact that I've come to church for four weeks in a row, four weeks in a row, God, and I've had my Bible there, and it's been open as the pastor's been preaching. I mean, surely you've seen that. There must be something in this for me, God, right? And yet the Bible is teaching us from cover to cover that the grace of God is unmerited. There's nothing that you can do to deserve it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how much you try to contribute to it. In fact, the more that you try to contribute to it, the more power you take from it. So the Bible says that God's grace is unmerited. Uh, That leads to the second part of this definition. It is God's unmerited favor. It's his favor. And uh, do we really understand what it means to have God's favor on our life? Um, A definition of of God's favor is this. This is God intentionally turning toward you to bless you. Okay, this is God intentionally turning toward you to bless you. God's disposition towards you is one of kindness. It's one of love. It's one of compassion. It's one of mercy. And, And there was a time in your life where God was turned away from you, but because of his grace, he has now turned towards you. This is God's unmerited Uh, favor and and understand that everything that you and I have in this life is because of the unmerited favor of God to us. And uh, then notice what the next part of verse 11 says, carries on this thought, for the grace of God has appeared. And uh, that word appeared in verse 11 means uh, something to be seen in a way that it was previously unseen. Okay? Now that's really important because what's happening here in verse 11 is something of a shift Okay, and uh, Paul is no longer speaking of grace simply in terms of the theological reality that it is, but instead now, he's speaking of grace as appearing in the form of a person, and it's appeared in Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, and uh, basically Paul is saying here, listen, we've always known that God is good, we've always known he's been loving, we've always known he's been gracious, but now we see the grace of God so clearly and so perfectly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Isn't that amazing? Bringing salvation for all people. And um, it's amazing when you think about that in terms of your own life. You know, there was a time when, when you and I, uh, all believers in Jesus Christ, we have, we have a, a very similar testimony in some sense. We were all living our life, doing our own thing, not really concerned about anyone or anything else. And you know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that death. But then at just the right time, in just the right way, the grace of God was poured out upon us and, and the grace of God was given to us and God intentionally turned toward us and gave us his favor and he gave us faith to believe in Jesus Christ. And do you know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that life. And that happens. How does a person go from being dead in their sin to being alive in Jesus Christ? The only way that happens is by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So believer in Jesus Christ, rejoice. Rejoice that you have been set free from your sin. Rejoice that you have been set free from having to earn your salvation. Listen, you don't go searching for God's grace. God's grace comes to you and then saves you from your sin. And that is a beautiful reality that we have in Jesus Christ. And so today, you can rest in the truth that everything that needs to be done for you has been done already on the cross of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. And maybe there are some of you here this morning and, and you don't know Jesus Christ yet as your Savior and Lord. And if that's where you are right now, the Bible says that you are still dead in your sins. But I want you to hear so clearly right now that the grace of God is reaching down to you right now in this moment, reaching down to you and saying to you, God is saying to you, I love you and I want you for my own and I want to give you new life in Jesus Christ and I want you to understand that there is so much more to this life than the things that you see around you. I want you to know me. That's what God's grace is saying to you right now. Why? Because the grace of God is bringing salvation for all people. And those last few words in verse 11 are partially a reference back to verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. And, and uh, Paul says the grace of God is bringing salvation for all people, for older men and, and for uh, older women, for younger women and for younger men. The grace of God is bringing salvation for children who have a simple faith. It's bringing salvation for teenagers who have a simple faith. The grace of God is bringing salvation for people on their deathbed and for people on death row. The grace of God is bringing salvation for that lady who comes to church every week and sits in the same spot with her Bible open, but she doesn't really know Jesus. And the grace of God is bringing salvation for that person in the tribe in the middle of Africa who doesn't even know what a Bible is and is hearing about the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And uh, so the first thing that we need to know, first thing we need to remember is that the grace of God saves me. Think about that. The grace of God turning toward you, and saving you, changing your life. The grace of God saves me. Here's the second uh, truth that we need to know. The grace of God changes me. The grace of God changes me. Notice uh, verse 12. Paul says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Um, the grace of God changes me. Paul begins verse 12 uh, with this word training. Um, how many of you have ever trained for something? Trained for, for a race, maybe for a job, uh, for a class, maybe something like that. Uh, a few summers ago, I trained for my very first five-kilometer race. Um, it also turned out to be my very last five-kilometer race. <laughs> Um, but I trained for it, and I learned through that process that, that there were certain things that you need to do and certain things you should not do if you want to race well. And, uh, and Paul says here that the grace of God trains us. And uh, what exactly does the grace of God train us to do? Well, verse 12 says, uh, the grace of God trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Uh, that word ungodliness means a lack of true reverence for God. Uh, worldly passions is uh, not just wanting the things of the world, it's actually wanting to commit the sin. So uh, worldly passions would be a little bit like uh, walking right up to the fence 
and, and taking a look over that fence and, and realizing, wow, the grass really does look greener on the other side of that fence, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do in order to get to the other side of that fence. That's worldly passions. It's wanting to commit the sin. And uh, how many times have you heard people say, yeah, I've given my life to Jesus Christ, and, 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 but I understand that the grace of God is big enough to forgive me of all the things that I do. And so I can lie and cheat and steal, and I can look at that stuff on my computer, and it's not really going to matter because the grace of God is big enough to forgive me of my sin. How many times have you heard people say that? And, and if that's where you are right now, if that's what you're saying, I would really challenge you to rethink uh, how you're living the Christian life, if that's your approach to Christianity, I would really encourage you to examine your own heart to see whether or not you are in the faith. And I would encourage you to do that because you're missing so much of the power of the grace of God. Because the reality is, this grace of God that saves you is also the grace of God that changes you. It changes you. And that's why Paul says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. But then, you see, it's not just getting rid of the stuff that's wrong. He says in verse 12, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The word self-controlled here is um, not just kind of grinding and gritting your teeth and then just hoping to get through whatever it is that you're going through. That's, that's really not what he's talking about here. Uh, instead, biblical self-control is godly thinking that leads to godly living, okay? A biblical self-control doesn't simply begin with, uh, with your own strength and your own willpower to do something. Biblical self-control actually begins in your mind because the things that you think about will eventually affect the way that you live and the things that you do. And so he says, be self-controlled. He says, be upright, walk in integrity. Again, a sharp contrast to the false teachers of chapter one. And then he says, be godly. Now, what takes a person from ungodliness to godliness? What takes a person from sin to repentance? It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God on their life. It's the grace of God on my life. And maybe you can think back to a time in your own life when, uh, when the grace of God saved you and, and you can uh, remember those days that you lived before you came to know Christ and, and you can think to yourself, yeah, man, I was angry, I was bitter, I was self-centered. But then in the middle of that, God came to me and God saved me and, and God poured out his grace on me and gave me faith to believe in Christ. And when that happened, I mean, now I love the people that I was angry at. And now, now I have compassion towards the people I was bitter toward. And, and now, I, now I, I don't live my life selfishly anymore. Instead, I live my life with a genuine concern for the other people around me. Life's just not about just me anymore. Life's about the people around me. Life's about glorifying God now. And what takes a person from being that to living a life that is totally changed? The only thing that can change a person is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, yes, that's what I need. I need a new start. I need a clean slate because I've made so many mistakes. I've failed so many times. I'm frustrated by uh, the ways that I keep coming back to the same thing over and over again. And, and uh, I want you to understand that what God's word is saying to you and to me is that your life doesn't have to be that way anymore. You don't have to keep going back to that default response when life doesn't pan out the way that you thought it would. Because the grace of God that saves you is the grace of God that will change you. Listen, you can jot this down. The grace of God will not save you without also changing you. And um, do you know when we see most clearly if grace is changing us? We see it most clearly when life doesn't go the way that we expect it would. 
And uh, things, things just don't happen in the way that we wanted them to. And, and you had your five-year plan and, and all of the ducks were lined up and you were ready to go, but then you got that news at work. And then something happened with the kids that you didn't expect. And, and it's not long before it feels like the wheels have completely fallen off your wagon and, and you don't know what to do anymore. And it's in those moments where we truly see if the grace of God is changing our hearts. And so... How do you know if the grace of God is changing you? Uh, I wrote down three things. You can jot these down. First of all, prayer. Prayer. How do I know if God's grace is changing me? Uh, prayer. Um, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. Uh, it says this, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He's an everlasting rock. I mean, picture that for a minute in your mind. The Lord God is an everlasting rock. It doesn't matter how hard the, the rains fall and the winds blow. You can throw anything against that rock and it's not going to move. That's the Lord. He's with you. And um, who do you turn to first when things go wrong? Do you turn to the world? Or do you turn to the God who made the world? So one way that we know that the grace of God is changing us is through prayer. And then this, uh, through fruit in our life. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit uh, being born in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus said in John 15 verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. How do I know that the grace of God is changing me through prayer, through fruit, and then this, through obedience? I'm walking in the power of the Holy Spirit because I know that the grace of God changes me. Here's the third truth that we need to know. Uh, not only does the grace of God save me, and not only does the grace of God change me, uh, but now the grace of God captures me. The grace of God captures me. Notice uh, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, other translations begin verse 13 by using the word looking. And uh, the idea here is that uh, we are looking for something with a heightened expectation. Okay, it's almost like uh, you're standing on your tippy toes and, and you're just looking out and, and you're waiting for something to happen and all of the things that are going on around you, they're important, but you're, you're zoomed in on that one thing that you're anticipating, that one thing that you can't wait to happen. And, and why do we do that? Uh, we do that because Jesus Christ is coming again and that is our hope. We're looking ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ with great expectation and great anticipation. And uh, that word hope is a key word here in verse 13. It's a key word in this passage. And uh, you would do well to underline that or circle that in your Bible. And um, let's get a definition of hope here as well. Uh, hope is the glad assurance that something will happen. Okay, hope is the glad assurance that something will happen. A biblical hope is, is not, I hope this is going to happen. And, and here I am, I'm standing at this fork in the road and, and I could go this way and I could go that way and I don't really know which way exactly it's gonna go yet but if, if it goes this way, it could fail miserably. If it goes that way, it could succeed greatly and, and I hope that it goes this way but I just don't know yet. That's not biblical hope. 
Okay, biblical hope is the glad assurance that something will happen. This is 100% rock solid, no doubt about it. This is happening because God said it will happen. And it produces joy. It produces excitement and anticipation within us. That's why Paul calls it here our blessed hope. And um, your hope in this life is not in your healing from your illness. Your hope in this life is not in finding a better job. Your hope is not in having more money. Your hope in this life is actually the promise of the next life. It's the promise of eternal life. And it's interesting uh, that the New Testament makes 318 references to the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, That's an average of one reference every 13 verses in the New Testament. That's a pretty big deal. And, and it's a big deal because it's foundational to our faith. And um, we need to understand that the gospel does not end simply with the reality that Jesus died on the cross and rose again to save me from my sins. And if I believe in him, I'll have eternal life forever. Is that true? Yes and amen, that's true. Thank the Lord that that is true. But the gospel goes on to say that there's coming a day when Jesus will come back for us and he will take us to be with him forever and this world will be no more and we'll be in eternity with him. That's the beauty of the gospel. And um, it's absolutely foundational to our faith, so much so that Jesus made reference to his own return in John 14, verse 3. He said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that, you, uh, that where I am you may be also. Uh, not only did Jesus re- uh, refer to his own return, but the angels referred to his return as well. Acts 1, verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And the angels refer to him uh, returning again. The epistles, the New Testament letters refer to Jesus coming again. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Amen? Amen. That is such good news. The bottom line, folks, is this. This is happening. Jesus Christ is coming again. We have the glad assurance that he will return for us. And so um, here are three signs that I am captured by the grace of God in the return of Jesus Christ. How do I know that I'm captured by God's grace uh, and by the reality that Jesus is coming again? Here's the first way. I have a greater spiritual awareness. And uh, you can see that right here in verse 13. Uh, Paul says we're waiting, right? We're looking, we're anticipating this. We can't wait for this to happen. And and we realize that Jesus Christ is coming again. So it's not a question of if he's coming again. It's a question of when he's coming again. And, And the answer to that question is it could happen at any moment, anytime Jesus could come again for us. And so I'm living my life in a way right now that makes me ready for his return whenever he comes back. And, and so I'm not wasting my life on things right now that don't matter. I'm not wasting my life chasing a better job or a bigger bank account or a nicer car, fancier home, a bigger retirement. I'm not chasing all of those things in this life. I'm not going to waste my life on that stuff. Instead, I'm looking, I'm waiting, I am anticipating the return of Jesus. And everything that I do in my life is shaped by that. I have a greater spiritual awareness. And then this, uh, I have hope that this life is not all there is. 
Three signs that I'm captured by the grace of God in the return of Jesus. I have hope that this life is not all there is. Uh, Paul says in, in verse 13 that this is our blessed hope. We have the glad assurance that the promise that God made will in fact happen. And uh, there's coming a day when Jesus Christ, think about this, when Jesus Christ will usher us into the presence of God himself for all of eternity. And he will take these lowly bodies and he will transform them. And there will be no more death. And there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And we will be in the presence of the Lord forever. That is your hope. That is what we look forward to. I have hope that this life is not all there is. And when we see that, how can we not be captured by the grace of God? Finally, this, um, I have a growing urgency to tell others about Jesus. Three signs that I'm captured by the grace of God. I have a growing urgency to tell others about Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul says that he is appearing. And uh, everything that happens today, understand, is pointing to that day when Jesus Christ will return and he judges the living and the dead. And so we need to be spending our lives right now telling others that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We must proclaim that message. And uh, why do we need to do that? Why do we need to get the message out? We need to get the message out because the grace of God absolutely captures me changes my life. Here's the fourth truth that we need to know. Uh, the grace of God defines me. The grace of God defines me. Uh, look again at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God defines me now. Um, I think maybe we could agree on some level that uh, one of the greatest challenges today for many Christians is that uh, we do not know who we are in Jesus Christ. And um, we do not know how our life is different because the grace of God has changed us. And, and maybe you're sitting here right now and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, that's me. And, and I, I watch all these commercials on TV that tell me I'm supposed to be one thing and then I listen to music on the radio that tells me I'm supposed to be another thing and then I, I read this book and it tells me if I can simply master this technique then, then I'll be a much better person by like Friday and, and if I can just do that. And the problem is that all of these different things are telling me different messages. They're all communicating different things and, and so... Um, what we need, I believe, is for the totality of who we are to be defined by the word of God. And so uh, jot these five things down, all from verse 14. This is how the grace of God defines me. Okay, first of all, uh, I am loved. I am loved. And um, notice the start of verse 14. Paul says, uh, who gave himself for us. I am loved. Now, who is he talking about at the start of verse 14? If you go back to verse 13, it tells us that he's talking about Jesus. And um, Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows his love for us in this way. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now why is this so important? Why is it so important for me to know that God loves me to that degree, to that magnitude, that's so important for me because Jesus Christ is the only acceptable sacrifice before God. 
The Bible says that, um, that my righteousness, my good works, is like filthy rags before God. It doesn't matter how good I am. It doesn't matter how many good things I try to do. The reality doesn't change that I will never be good enough on my own before God. And the thing is, God knew that. And so he gave his only son in my place and Jesus willingly went to the cross, his body broken and his blood shed on my behalf, on your behalf, so that we could know him. God proved his love for us in that. When Jesus went to the cross, when he rose again, he did it to show that you are loved, that I am loved. And uh, he says this next, how does the grace of God define me? I am set free. Um, The next part of verse 14 says, to redeem us from all lawlessness. Uh, I am set free. That word lawlessness here means wickedness. Uh, It means sin. And the language of redemption here takes us all the way back to Exodus, where the people are set free from their Egyptian bondage. And uh, the thing with that is that Moses, as powerful as he was, as much as he was used by God, uh, to take the people out of Egyptian bondage and, and start leading them toward the promised land, Moses could only take them so far. And so now Paul is saying, there's a better Moses, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is not only able to release you from physical bondage, but he's able to release you from the spiritual bondage of your sin. And it's almost like you get the picture in your mind of sitting in a prison cell, and, and a person is chained there, and, and they're handcuffed to the wall, and, and they can't go anywhere, they can't do anything, and, and that's not going to change until someone comes into the cell, unlocks the handcuff, and sets them free. And you and I were the ones who were sitting in the cell, handcuffed to the wall, not able to go anywhere or do anything until God himself came in, and he unlocked the chain of our sin, and he set us free in Jesus Christ. We are set free and um, then he says this, I am, I am being purified. And not only am I loved and not only am I set free, but I'm being purified. He says next in verse 14, to purify for himself. And uh, day by day, moment by moment, circumstance by circumstance, God is sovereignly allowing things into your life to burn away the impurities in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. And uh, maybe you're going through something right now. Maybe this has been a particularly difficult season for you over the last little while. And, and, and you're at church this morning and you're thinking to yourself, man, why am, I, why am I still dealing with this? Why is this still going on? I mean, I thought I put this in the rearview mirror a long time ago. And I thought all of this was done and it was over. And yet here it is again and I'm still struggling with this again. Why does God allow these trials and this suffering into my life? Listen, um, God does not allow trials into your life because he doesn't love you. He allows trials into your life because he loves you more than you could know. And those trials in our life purify us. And they make us ready to be in the presence of our Savior for all of eternity. He allows trials into our life to help us realize that we cannot at all survive apart from the grace of God. I'm being purified. Then he says this, I belong to him. The next part of verse 14 says, a people for his own possession. Um, I belong to God. And and the meaning of that phrase is is that we are the prized and treasured possession of God. And uh, if you belong to God, then the promises of God are true for you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are the prized and treasured possession of God and his promises are true for you. Promises like God will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Promises like you have been forgiven of your sins as far as the east is from the west. He has pushed those away from you. Scripture says that God buries our sins in the ocean. 
I mean, sometimes we hear people say, you know, you need to be very careful about the way that you live your life right now because what if it happens one day that you get to heaven and God plays all of your sins on the big screen for everyone to see? You know what? That's never going to happen. Never, ever. That's not a biblical idea. It's not a biblical thought because the reality is that your sins have been buried in the sea by God. You have been forgiven as far as the east is from the west. All of those sins have been pushed away from you. They have been taken by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. You've been forgiven of your sins. You have the promise that the Holy Spirit is in you. You have the promise of eternal life. You have the promise that God will supply all of your needs and give you good things. God promises wisdom for those who ask, victory for those who struggle, deliverance for those who fear, protection for those in trouble, and new life for those who believe. And to top all of it off, God says that his promises will never fail. That's your God. And you belong to him. He ends verse 14 by saying this, uh, I have purpose. I have purpose. Uh, He says, uh, those who are zealous for good works. And um, scripture says in Ephesians 2, in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And, and if you go back to the start of Ephesians 2, you remember um, that, that Paul takes great lengths to describe this process of grace and, and that God has poured out his grace on us in such magnificent ways, but that grace has been given to us for a purpose, not simply to save us from our sins, but then to lead us to good works. And, and part of what he's saying here is that the purpose of grace is to display the power of the gospel. Okay, a true understanding of grace in your life and my life will lead us to say, I'm learning more about what God has done for me. I'm learning more about how his grace has radically changed me. And now I'm joyfully, I'm gladly, willingly, Paul says here, I am zealously giving my life in good works back to God. And so who am I? I am loved, I am set free, I'm being purified. I belong to him and I have purpose The grace of God defines me. And then uh, there's one last thing that we need to know here in this passage. Um, Paul says, the grace of God sends me. The grace of God sends me. Uh, Notice verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. The grace of God sends me. Uh, This instruction was first given to Titus as a pastor and an elder and a leader in the church. And Paul says to him, you need to tell people how the grace of God has radically impacted you and how it radically impacts them as well. And he says, first of all here, declare this. This refers to the pastor's responsibility to preach so that people understand, to preach clearly so that people can comprehend the message of the gospel. And I'm sure Pastor Meldon has a routine that he goes through uh, every week as he gets ready to preach on Sunday. I have a routine that I go through every week to get ready to preach on Sunday. It's the same process of reading the text and trying to understand what God is saying in his word and what he wants to say to his people in our church and, um, and then figuring out how to communicate this in a clear and simple way to the people. But even as I'm going through that process the whole time, I'm praying, God, please give me the fullness of your message, the fullness of your message for these people at this time, in this place, for your glory and for our unending joy. God, speak to your people. God, help me to do this because I have absolutely nothing to offer on my own. I have nothing to give you apart from what God has already given to me. 
God, help me to do this well. And, and uh, Paul says that's the pastor's responsibility to preach clearly and simply, uh, but also to preach urgently. And uh, notice what he says next in verse 15. He says, exhort. Uh, this is pleading with people not only to understand the truth, but also to believe it and apply it to their lives. And then he says, rebuke. Uh, help people understand why they must turn away from things that are wrong. And why do we turn away from things that are wrong? Because we have been given grace to turn towards things that are right. See, this is where everything comes together in Jesus Christ. Paul has spent chapters 1 and 2 of Titus, and he's about to spend chapter 3 coming up, telling people how to live in such a way that God will bless them, telling them how to be a church that ultimately God will bless. But the question is, how do you live a godly life when the influence of the world is so strong? How do you love? How do you say no to ungodliness and worldly passions? How do you live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age? How do you do that? We can do this because Jesus Christ loved, the, loved a world that was not worthy of his love, and he proved it by willingly laying down his life for that world. When Jesus was tempted, he said no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. See, when God's grace appears to you and brings salvation to you, the victory of Jesus Christ becomes your victory as well. His life in your life. His power strengthening you to live a radically changed life. See, what I'm about to say may sound so basic and, and maybe even cliche, but you cannot live the Christian life apart from Christ. That is absolutely foundational. We need to keep coming back to that over and over again. That's the power of the gospel at work within us. You cannot live the Christian life apart from Jesus Christ. And the most frustrating experiences of our Christian life are when we try to do just that, when we try to live apart from Jesus. But everything changes when we see the grace of God working in us. And when I see it and when you see it, the Christian life then stops becoming a bunch of boxes that we need to check off in between bouts of frustration and failure. And the Christian life then starts to become a life that is filled with joy because we know the one to whom we belong. And the Christian life starts to become a life filled with power because his strength is working in us to give us victory over our sin. The Christian life starts to become a life filled with peace because we know that the anxieties and the cares of this life have been overcome by the one who lives in us. See, what has the power to take you from fear to joy? What has the power to take you from weakness to strength? What has the power to take you from anxiety to peace? What has the power to take you from death in your sin to life in Jesus Christ? It's the grace of God, which is meant to so radically impact the way that I live. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you for this time in your word. Lord, thank you for uh, the grace that you have poured out on us. Lord, again, we come before you uh, with such a strong recognition that there's nothing in us, there's nothing about us that makes us even a little bit worthy of um, your grace and your favor being given to us. And yet, Lord, we have gathered together this morning to simply thank you 
for intentionally turning toward us when we didn't deserve to be turned towards. You poured out your favor upon us. You poured out your mercy upon us. You poured out your compassion and your love upon us. And you changed us. And Lord, even right now, you're still in the process of changing us. And so Lord, I pray that you would find among us here a group of people who day by day and moment by moment and circumstance by circumstance are desiring ever more to press into the grace of God, not only that has saved us, but the grace of God that will continue to change us. Lord, we need you for this. We want you for this. Lord, we are nothing on our own. We are nothing apart from you. So I pray, oh God, please help us. We turn to you for everything that we need. We love you and we thank you most of all for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen.